Welcome to the Love Your Story podcast. Today's story is of Johnny Serpilla, his wife, Susan, their struggle with infertility, the death of their triplets, and the power of hope coming through pain and learning to live with gratitude. Johnny Serpilla, founder of Encourage LLC and author of Life is Hard, But I'll Be Okay, is a professional speaker to businesses and communities and universities about managing thoughts, leading yourself to productive choices and framing each challenge in your life as an opportunity for self-reflection and growth. So it's right up our alley. So stay tuned. We're going to hear from him. Stories are our lives in language. Welcome to the Love Your Story podcast. I'm Lori Lee, and I'm excited for our future together of telling stories, evaluating our own stories, and lifting ourselves and others to greater places because of our control over our stories. This podcast is about empowerment and giving you, the listener, ideas to work with in making your stories work for you. Story power serves you best when you know how to use it. to start out with a couple of reviews of Johnny's book, Life is Hard, But I'll Be Okay. The first one is from Dr. Nito Kubain, president of High Point University. And he says, quote, he has written a book to help anyone deal head on with any struggle they face so they can become more resilient, eventually heal and find beauty in the hardship, the silver lining in a dark cloud. The second one is from Sereni Pillay. MD, Harvard-trained psychiatrist, she said, quote, Johnny Serpilla takes us on a journey through adversity and reminds us that anyone who is falling apart can put themselves back together again at a higher level. With a heartwarming style of writing, he reminds us to find the blessings in our struggles and to explore our shadow selves so that we can live in a more whole and self-forgiving way. Touched by magic himself, Serpilla will remind you that your own magic is more within your reach than you think. A profoundly touching page turner. This book is a must read, unquote. Johnny, with these great words, let's jump into what you know. Welcome to the Love Your Story podcast. Thank you so much, Lori. Thank you for having me on. Pretty cool name to your podcast, Love Your Story, because we all have one. And so way to embrace it. Nice Absolutely. Back when the Love Your Story podcast was being conceived, I got to tell you, the name was the thing that came the most easily. It was me struggling to love my story. And I, it started out with a research project of from ac- in my academic years of trying to put together if everyone's story turned out as they wanted, which of course, or as they expected, I guess is the better word. And um, obviously that few and far between 19 out of 20 people stories did not, but the name came so easily. I've always known what it was from the beginning. So we're here to love our stories. You are the specialist at helping people understand how to reshape their thoughts through their difficult times and thrive rather than just survive. If we can use that catchphrase, but the only way that you know how to do that is if you've done it yourself. So can we start with your story and how you learned to do this? And I want to say I've read the first, I got through the first half of your book before I got here. So it it was very emotional. So I got through a lot of 
your story and very moving, so much strength, so much insight. Take us there, will you? Certainly. So, you know, I think we all, uh, just as my title states, you know, we can all find life to be hard. Um, it doesn't mean that life doesn't have amazing moments, beautiful moments, but there's a lot of tragic moments and difficult times that we have. And, and what happened in our own life, because it, it got so dark after Nicholas, Mary and Peter passed away uh, shortly after birth, that we were in a place that uh, really to survive, uh, we first needed to accept what had happened. Um, and then as we move forward after the funeral and beyond, what we needed to do was really reframe the thoughts that we had because the thoughts that we had were so dark. And so, you know, our journey for a family took many, many years, um, years of infertility leading up to the death of Nicholas, Mary, and Peter, um, subsequent pregnancies after that, that uh, did not play out, challenging adoptions um, internationally and, and then domestically, um, one of which plays out, um, and then uh, very life-threatening pregnancies for my wife later, um, and then ending with a moral dilemma. So, you know, the, the process was never one where we kind of, you know, hit a low. Um, we continued to find lower lows. And so that's why the concept of reframing our thoughts, because we can't change a reality. So our only thing that we can do is come to terms with the cards that life has handed us, turn to our faith, uh, turn to each other. And we were very focused from the beginning to not be a statistic that, you know, half the couples that uh, lose a child end up in divorce. We wanted to grieve and grow together and not grieve and grow apart. And so that's really where the concept uh, that our psychologist worked us through these cognitive behavioral therapy techniques, which she also writes about in the afterward and reflects on how uh, the concepts she taught us, how we applied them, how it really became nutrition for us, if you will. Okay. So what were those? So there's a variety of, of techniques that we work through and that I continue to do myself today. So first of all, I, I will disclose and share that I, I am a guy with anxiety. I worry about a lot of things, um, some things that I really should worry about as what happened to us and other things that are products of thoughts that I have. So some of those cognitive behavioral techniques that you have is number one in, in mindfulness, uh, starting there and trying to get to a spot where we really understand a spot that we are at. And then we start asking ourselves questions. Uh, questions like the thought that I'm having, what proof do I have to suggest that it is true and it is real? And once we answer that question, then you can really ask the next one. Am I basing these thoughts on my feelings alone or could I prove a fact as I did in the previous question? And am I making them worse by the feelings that I'm attributing to that thought? Maybe asking, you know, what is the evidence that I have that really suggests that this is true or likely to happen? So it's what stories you're telling yourself in, in your mind. And am I creating a reality that's based in fact, or am I creating a reality that's based in emotion and, and imagination? Exactly. And as somebody with anxiety and somebody is, as I call myself, an active thinker, I called myself that before I was officially diagnosed with anxiety years ago. But when you're an active thinker and have one thought that comes in that replaces the last thought, 
and maybe as a new potential front runner of what I could worry about, um, you really do have to kind of disguise the thoughts that are, I shouldn't say disguise, but maybe, you know, pass on the disguise, the thoughts that you have to do nothing with. So versus the thoughts that you do have to process and you do have to ask those questions. What I've also learned to do through those techniques is really question a thought that comes in. I could just let it go right back out in one ear, out the other, right? One side of the head, because I don't need to process that. I don't need to think about it. I don't need to put any feelings or emotion around it. It's a thought that I had and that's fine. And I do that sometimes too with, if I think something that let's say it's dark or I don't agree with it, or it's not something I want to draw to myself, I will consciously just dismiss it and not give it any more energy. And I'll say, you know, that, that thought can leave. Like I'll do that consciously just to, to let it go and, and to let myself know that I'm letting it go. We need to do that, Lori, because you said a very important word about giving it more energy. I'm a believer that we have a hundred percent pool of energy every day. And what amount, what percentage of that energy do we want to give up towards a thought, towards an individual, towards a circumstance, whatever it might be, that's not productive in our lives. Um, We could, we could burn a lot of energy uh, there on things that we don't need to. And so, you know, really today in the information era where information is thrown at us so largely and boldly and, and strongly, you know, it, it is wise to look at your energy pool and, and decide what you're going to use. For sure. And Johnny, just so that this episode has as much punch as it can, I would like you to take us back to the story of you and Susan. I mean, in the book, it is so deep and so rich and so blow, blow by blow that it really takes the person there emotionally. And, you know, the listeners will go out and buy your book as well, but for them to understand the magnitude of what you're talking about, when you've been through the ups and downs that you two went through together in order to try to build your family, then coming to understand and manage your thoughts and in an active way to get through the dark space starts to make sense, but it's not, it's not a bullet point of we tried fertility and then that didn't work. And we tried this and we tried that and we got pregnant. You know, it's not that it's way more deep than that. So can you just take us, maybe let's spend, I don't know, 10 minutes and, and share your story and what that felt like and all the hope that was in that. And then we'll just quickly transition into how do you go from those spaces to, well, you mentioned that Dr. Barbara Fortas, helped you with some of these psychological practices, you know, what, what did you do from that space to survive? So let's go to your story first. So our story, my wife and I um, met in our last month of college and uh, quickly fell in love. We're, we're married not too long after. Uh, You're a super cute couple. I saw your pictures and you just look good together. Thank you. I, I, I certainly married up. And, you know, we, we um, dated for a matter of months uh, before I bought an engagement ring. And I, I joke that with my parents over the years that, you know, why didn't you stop me at, you know, 23 years old so quickly to propose? And they said, there was nothing to stop. I mean, Susan was the one for you. And so they, they had the wisdom for that. Um, I had the heart for it, but they had the wisdom to see that what I was doing was really stable and smart and not young and emotional. Um, I'm a full-blooded Italian, so I am a pretty emotional guy. And my wife is just, she's salt of the earth. I mean, she is just kind 
always. She is patient. Uh, she's loving beyond belief. And both of us were very focused in our careers. And um, she was doing extremely well in the pharmaceutical industry. She was a rock star there. I, I, I loved and, and boasted the fact that as I was running our family business, my wife was even making more money than me. And I was just so proud of her because she just was awesome. Tearing I mean, it up. Yeah. yeah, she was. She just was. And so, you know, when we appeared to be that couple to many that was just very career focused and, you know, we were hiding a secret that we started to try to get pregnant shortly after getting married. And um, we were unsuccessful at it uh, month after month after month. And, um, you know, which, which is hard was, for you guys who are such high, high achievers in everything you do that had to just feel like a real hit. It did that first month, you know, I joked with my wife and said, you know, my, my goodness, um, we did everything right. And often, um, how could this <laughs> not have produced a pregnancy? And there was that seed of insecurity that started to plant. Um, I always had it in the back of my mind um, as a teenager and as in college because I couldn't wait to be a dad, but I never could picture being a biological dad. I used to try to envision what my biological children could look like or be like. And I, I never even created the image. It was a blank space. My wife had uh, images of always having a hard time conceiving. And so we never shared that with each other until about a year into our infertility, we did. Uh, share that. And then, you know, we just remained committed and just kept saying, hey, we use the positive self-talk. We were we were really fine, Lori. I mean, outside of the, you know, sadness that would come every month, um, we called it Aunt Flo when Aunt Flo would come in town. Um, that was our unwanted house guest that would join us, we would say, uh, with Susan's cycle. Um, we really were okay because we kept talking each other through it. It was later that the doctors introduced more serious drugs and I was giving my wife's wife injections uh, for each cycle and it just felt off to me. So there was new emotion in that, that I was almost chemically um, altering Susan's body, not almost, I was clearly in her hormones. And that just felt unnatural to me. And I worried about cancer. I worried about those risks. Again, an anxious thinker, my wife, not an anxious thinker. She was like, Johnny, just give me a shot. Don't worry, I'll be fine. And I'd say, how do you know you're going to be fine? How do you know that you're not going to get breast cancer from this? I mean, these drugs, this is serious. You know, as it turns out, you know, at 43, my wife had a mass and ended up needing a mass in her breast and um, a tumor that, you know, she ended up having a double mastectomy. So some of the fears, I can't prove that it happened from all those years with those drugs, but it just was in, in my gut. So again, there's something for me, the way anxiety plays out, you know, call it 18 years later, um, we, we got a medical diagnosis that was, that was hard to accept. But in that process, um, again, we just kept moving forward and month after month um, determined and my wife tolerated me extremely well, Lori, because of my intensity. And she needed some of that intensity, quite honestly, because, you know, she might have walked away sooner from the the, the fight. Um, and, and so we, we balanced each other. Well, she called me, I intensified her and we kept trying to find that spot. How long did um, it take you before you got pregnant? Uh, it was a little over three years wow. and then we became pregnant with triplets. And so life was great. Um, the, 
Uh, well, certainly it was great for me. Uh, my wife was incredibly sick. Um, she lost uh, 15 pounds in that first trimester. She was throwing up seven times a day, um, but still working full time. And in then, the book, when you said she was working through, like I was picturing her doing all of this, being able to stay at home. And then you said she was working full time. I'm like, oh, my gosh, how would you ever do that? That poor woman. I know. And, and, you know, job not sitting at a desk. She was in and out of her car as a pharmaceutical sales rep, bringing wow. samples to doctor's offices, carrying in lunches, um, dinners. Um, second trimester, you know, she gained about 30 pounds. So that was better. So she was only up 15 pounds at six months pregnant um, with triplets. Wow. Um, and so, you know, her body was going through a lot. Um, and, and she was, but she was feeling better uh, other than, you know, of course, in the second trimester, just being extremely, extremely tired. So we would rest a lot outside of work hours. And then, you know, we, um, and I go into great detail in the book about when Nicholas, Mary and Peter were born and their prematurity and, and the tough decisions that we had to make and, um, how we chose to have our time with them ultimately in our minds be enough. And that's really an important distinction that I write about in the book is that, you know, as, as humans, we always want more of a good thing. And what we had to reframe our thoughts to is that our time as brief as it was with Nicholas, Mary and Peter alive, that is all that it was ever going, going to be. And, and how so long did they live? Find, they lived just the evening that they were born. And um, we, we learned over time to just find such gratitude and beauty in that. I will say the time that they were alive, um, we were the happiest people in that hospital. We knew likely uh, what was happening, um, that they were going to pass. But what we were given the grace, and it's God's grace certainly carried us through that, uh, which is why one of the chapters is called Footprints in the Sand, um, because we were carried through that time and we were genuinely happy. Later, we realized uh, the reality of what happened, of course. So after three years of just every every day, every week, taking shots, doing, you know, hoping, praying, you finally go through this super difficult pregnancy. And then your little family of five, they die and you have to bury them. So many people would go to that, just that deep, dark space of, why me and anger and of course the deep deep sadness and you know a lot of people don't ever find their way out of that both you and your wife seem like you were very balanced and productive people psychologically sound not everybody is but with that and and I'm I'm going back to the book with Barbara Fortas, who owns the largest and most respected psychological practice in your town, you said that she laid the foundation for a method of critical, critical thinking that you used for two decades. So I'm assuming that her work helped you. I, I guess what's, what I'm asking is what is the path? Was it the things that she brought to you? Was it God? Was it your partnership with Susan, probably all of it, right? But how does somebody, when they get to that place where they could sink, what did it look like not to sink? So for us, um, and I can relate to the people that are in that dark place. I mean, we were uh, for a long time, I mean, getting out of bed was a challenge. Um, spending a lot of time at the cemetery, um, just literally laying on the grass um, at their grave to be physically close to them. 
uh, we could almost get chills feeling their presence near us. Um, from going from their nursery at home to the cemetery to just try to have that connection. So there was a, a lot of dark time and I, and I wanna be, uh, give hope to the people that might be listening now that are in that dark time, that if they fight hard enough, there is a way out. Um, and, and for us, it, it wasn't a natural way out, Lori. It was a concentrated effort to say, we need to get out of this place we can get out of this place and we're gonna do it together. We're gonna to cling to each other. We're gonna to cling to our faith, of course, cling to God and then Barb's counsel. What Dr. Fordyce was, was telling us, and I'll tell you the thing that, that changed me is probably a year after Nicholas, Mary and Peter died. Um, and at this point uh, we were parents to our son that was adopted without trying to spoil too much in the book. Um, I, I was struggling with moving on. Um, I felt guilt um, associated with the happiness I was feeling. I was conflicted and torn. Um, there, was something, there was something that just felt very natural um, about staying in sadness. And I think that's where the people that do stay in sadness, because you're genuinely so sad, it's your natural go-to emotion. When you leave that emotion, it could feel unnatural. When it becomes your baseline, when sadness is your normal feeling in depression and darkness, when you have brief moments of getting out of it and feeling joy, there's almost a detachment that you feel from that darkness that I need to get back there because that's where I'm closest to my loved one. That's where I'm closest to my loss. That's where I, I get it. That's where I feel everything that I should be feeling. And so I, I told Barb one day in session, I said, Barb, I refuse to let go of Nic Nicholas, Mary, and Peter. I won't do it. I can't. I can't move on. As some people were saying, Johnny, you have to move on. You have a son now. And, and I, I was like, no, I don't. Um, I, and I won't. What Barb said, which was so wise, and she found the solution to honor what I was feeling as well as honor moving forward. And so what she explained, Lori, um, with these words that changed my life for the decades that followed, is that she said, Johnny, you do not have to let go of Nicholas, Mary, and Peter. You can hold on to them, keep them in your heart, and hold on tightly. But you do need to let go of the dreams that you had for them in this lifetime, because they will never happen. And so she gave me that strong dose of reality. She said it and she paused and I was able to sit there and I could remember this, you know, 27 years ago, thinking, wow, I, she gave me that permission to hold on to them where everyone else was saying, let them go. I needed that, but I just had to come to terms with, you know, them in school and teaching them sports and all those things they're not going to be. And somehow, again, through God's grace, through my wife's care support for me supporting her, we were able to get to accept that. And then we started saying, and, you know, she'd ask, tell me what was beautiful about when they were alive. And we started talking about that. And she would see the way our faces would light up when we would talk about our two sons and our daughter. And, and she let us know that, you know, 
that's so great that you've had this experience and no one else really looked at it that way. And I look at that that way today, Lori, that we were blessed for an experience that changed us for the better. And Nicholas, Mary, and Peter's life will not be judged as a tragic event mm. um, in, our, in our minds. Um, it is a blessing that we got to be their parents and, and that will never change. The choice to look at it as a blessing rather than a tragic event is such a healthy, wonderful, productive, and honorable like honoring them way to see it, because if they're coming into your life had caused you a lifetime of misery, I'm sure that would be causing them all kinds of sadness, you know? And so to, to see it as a beautiful event that enriched you super healthy, how on a daily basis did you, what kind of emotions did you have to deal with in order to stay positive in order to stay married in order to move on it takes commitment because each day even after that session with barb i would still have the thoughts feeling happy again and think oh my gosh but i'm the father of three babies that died um and i'm still going to go to the cemetery on saturday and see them you know that that should feel like something and so it, it was uh, a daily commitment um, it got easier over time, the more I trained my brain and my thoughts on the thoughts that I'm going to not deal with, the thoughts I'm going to just let go, or the other thoughts that I'm going to reframe and say, remember, Johnny, we've already agreed. Nicholas, Mary, and Peter were an incredible blessing. They were beautiful, and they were created by God for us, and we had that experience. Of course you want more but that's not going to happen. So what are you going to do? And I would say these things sometimes out loud. And then it's, it's almost actually Barb, I was going to say, it's almost like a physical pain. When you have that thought, Barb taught us to wear a rubber band around our wrist. And that when we had one of those thoughts that hurt us, we were to snap it and kind of condition ourselves so that we could feel that sting on our wrist mm -hmm. to kind of condition like, Nope, there you go again. And someday Susan and I would get home from work and we'd look at each other's wrists and it would be either really red um, from a lot of snaps. Uh, we can kind of judge a good day or a bad day by that, or it was normal. And, and so it, it took conditioning and it took commitment. But what neither of us never did was shy away from it because we were determined to deal with this head on. Um, and we also, one thing that helped us is, you mentioned this earlier in the Why Me, we never got stuck in the why me moment. And so we didn't have to enter therapy and deal with that. Uh, we were already past that. And it was just logic that got us past that. Because you look in this world, bad things are happening to good people every day all over the world. And people born in other countries or other continents have it far worse from birth than we have ever had. People in this country as well. So for us, it just did not seem possible to say, why me? That's why one of the chapters is entitled, Why Not Us? And I think that is just so wise. I mean, truly just wise. You say in the book, courage, strength, grace, all good things that come from the bad. I have noticed as I've interviewed people with their experiences on the Love Your Story podcast, that one of the things I often hear from people is that 
have tragic experiences is they take away insights from, they learn the people that love them. They learn um, what feeling loved is because of the support they get. They, they learn the strength to deal with hard things. They learn to, that they can do hard things, maybe that they didn't know that they could do. In your book, you talk about how one of the things that you received was just incredible help and support from your family and friends. How much was that a factor in you being able to survive what you went through? That's a great question because they were, they were everything to us. And one of the things that we did that I think was helpful is, you know, that line from Jerry Maguire, help me help you uh, from that movie. Um, we, we allowed them to help us. My wife was not too proud. I was not too proud. And we didn't block people out. Now, my wife can be a little bit more private than me. Um, but what we did is when we saw a kind hand reaching out, we grabbed it. And we chose not to push it away. Um, many of our friends, um, three of our closest friends, uh, were pregnant at the same time we were and having babies when we were. And so, you know, we realized that we needed to be there for them just as they were there for us. One of those babies was born a week after the funeral. Um, and, and we chose to be there at the hospital for them and, and share in their joy as they shared in our sorrow. So that village, has, as I called it, that, was, that surrounded us, we leaned on them. We knew that they would do anything for us. And we accepted those gestures. And I think sometimes people know we didn't, we, we got more sympathy food than we ever wanted over the years because unfortunately it didn't end after Nicholas, Mary and Peter died. But, you know, we use that to teach us. Um, this is what really good people do. And, and I think that we're better humans because of them when we've seen others fall down. I liked that part in the book a lot that you, you, you really are a forward thinker. As things happen, you see, how, what do I learn from this and how do I implement this in my own life? And so you're experiencing and learning at the same time. When you talked about courage, strength, and grace, all good things that come from the bad, just in a quick litany, what, what do you think are all the things you gained from that difficult experience? I, I gained an understanding and an appreciation for family that I would tell you I did not need to gain. I grew up in a very close, faith-filled Italian family. I understood what family was. But through great loss, you can have great sorrow and then understand from great sorrow, great joy. I knew the intensity to which I wanted the father and I wanted the husband. Um, and I saw the way that I hurt, that my wife was hurting. And I never wanted to do or say something that would cause her pain. I think it's made me a better husband. Nicholas, Mary and Peter did that. That, that journey did that because I've seen my wife struggle in, to, in such darkness that I, I just, I, I won't do anything that hurts her. I can't. Um, and then it, it, it helped me as though, I mean, I had the perfect example of a father for me. Um, as a great example, I dialed up the intensity, um, which caused me to write, um, I started writing a love letter to each of my kids when they were born that I would give them on their 18th birthday. And they're all 200 some pages, single space type that are bound in, big books that was a surprise to them. None of them knew that I was doing that over the years. 
but it's that kind of intensity that I wanted in case anything ever happened to me again, active thinker worrying if I, if I died before they turned 18, they would have all these letters already from their dad. And so they knew exactly how important they were to me. And, you know, you mentioned about forward thinking. Um, I'm a believer in business. And as I ran uh, a large company with other committed, amazing executives and held that role um, in business, I always like to think five chess moves out in business because I'm just then prepared for all of those scenarios. Um, and in life, in my personal life, I try to do the same thing. I want to understand all the possible things out there that could go wrong because then I'm going to take actions now to make sure I don't get there. And this is really a result of all the things that went wrong in those many, many years, six, seven years. Um, and, and some things went right in there as well, but a lot of things went wrong and it helped me to have perspective. Mm-hmm. How, how did you involve God in being able to adopt all of these positive ways of thinking? So just always turn to him. Um, you know, as I, I will say that I'm a little bit more of a control freak kind of guy. I like to do things a certain way. I like them done a certain way. I like them done on time. So that doesn't really work with infertility. That doesn't work with death, right? That doesn't work with the natural order of, you know, a parent bearing a child being turned upside down. I also don't um, think it works with God. I think that he <laughs> his timing is <laughs> very different from what we want it to be often. That's right. So what it taught me to do um, is exactly what you just said, is to realize that I'm not in control of this. And so what I did was changed our prayer from get Susan pregnant and keep Susan pregnant to God, send us the children that you want us to raise. And then really put that prayer out there daily and from wherever, whatever color, whatever nationality, whatever illness, whatever it is that you want us to raise that child, our arms are open, we will be grateful. And I always made the promise that our children will be raised to know and honor and love you as well, God. And those were verbal prayers that we said daily. Johnny, thank you for sharing your story with us. Tell us where we can find your book. So the book is doing very well. I'm very excited. It's just recently launched. It has hit number one, 14 categories in three countries, uh, Australia, Canada, and the United States in 14 categories on Amazon. It has also uh, made on Amazon the number one hot new release in 19 categories. So we're very excited that the book is out there reaching people that it can touch and hopefully help. So Amazon, it's available there. Anywhere books are sold online, uh, potentially down the road as well um, in some stores, but right now online is best. Uh, There is the uh, paperback version, the uh, digital version, the ebook, and then the audio should be hitting uh, any day now, the audio book. That's awesome. Thank you so much for being here and sharing this and sharing your insights and your wisdom. We appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Thanks for what you're doing out there and creating really meaningful dialogue. I Thank you. I, I appreciate that. And all of the links for getting his book and contact information will be in the snow, sh- the snow, <laughs> the, <laughs> the show notes on loveyourstorypodcast.com.
talk by Elder Larry S. Katcher, a 70 in the LDS Church, called Ladder of Faith. Elder Katcher illustrates what we've seen in the Serpilla story. He asked the question in this talk, quote, how will life's challenges affect our faith in Jesus Christ? And what effect will our faith have on the joy and peace we experience in this life? Unquote. Well, Johnny's story and he and Susan's faith, it's just a prime example of this, of choosing faith, which led to peace. Elder Catcher goes on in that particular article, quote, accepting God's will in place of our own is key to finding joy, no matter the circumstances. Our faith in him can and will guide us through the complexities of life. Indeed, we find that there is simplicity on the other side of life's complexities as we remain steadfast in Christ, having a perfect brightness of hope. This story that Johnny shared today is one of resilience and the power of managing thoughts to seek gratitude when life is hard. I hope that you have found a light in his experience that will shine on your own path and help you to find the way to resilience and positive thought in difficult situations and hope and a clarity in whatever way that you needed a light. Remember that though life can be hard, you can be okay. You can find all the links for Johnny's book, as I mentioned, on the website at www.loveyourstorypodcast.com. Also, you can listen to the podcast there easy, super easy to share from your app. And I would ask that you please share this episode with someone you think would benefit from hearing it. We share stories with each other so that we can learn and grow and see the way forward. And if the stories aren't shared, then we miss that opportunity. So share it forward. We'll see you in two weeks for the next episode. And until then, live your life with intention and purpose.